Well, the big day is only a few weeks away, and I'm not talking about the Super Bowl. I'm also not talking about spring training and baseball, although that's important too. Uh, I'm actually talking about the Oscars. The Oscars. Any movie fans out there? I, I, I am a movie fan, but I have to admit something to you today. Two things, actually. Number one, I'm one of the worst people in the world to watch a movie with because I'll recommend a movie and then I will be asleep in about 15 minutes. Okay? And my appreciation of genres is fairly limited. I'm not a comic book movie fan. I don't love uh, fantasy. I don't love sci-fi. I love movies that sort of uh, make you think about the human condition and sort of invite you in to question why you're alive. And that's the reason we love stories, isn't it? I think about it every time around this time of the year where pictures are nominated for best picture and I try to watch as many of them as I can. And this year I got the chance to see 1917, which was brilliant in some ways, and Jojo Rabbit, which really sort of invited you to think about uh, the way that you think. But it's something about stories that draws us in, isn't it? There's something about them that we just love as human beings. There's a reason that we spend $11 billion every year going to the box office to see movies. Another $96 billion in in-home entertainment and cable and movies to watch on our couch. As the author Babette Buster once said, we are narrative animals. We absorb story. We love stories. And in fact, neuroscientists have identified that your brains are hardwired for story. They help us make sense of the world. They give us some handles for cause and effect, and they invite us to think deeply about what it means to be human. And if you were to sort of chart every story, they would follow some similar narrative arc to the one that's printed in your worship folder. And see, at the very beginning of a story, there's typically some sort of conflict, something that the protagonist has to figure out in a journey that he or she is invited to take. And throughout the beginning of the story to the middle, there's a, what we call rising tension. There's a, there's a conflict. There's a problem that just seems to keep building and building and building and building until you get to the moment of truth. And in the moment of truth, the protagonist is at a fork in the road where they have to decide which direction they're going to go. It's the moment where their life will be different on the other side of the decision. In the scriptures, if you were to read the account of Jesus calling Peter to drop his nets, that's the moment of truth in that story. Is Peter going to obey after a night of fishing and cleaning his nets and repairing his nets after he didn't catch anything? Will he obey? Will Israel follow God into the promised land? This is the moment of truth. Will the rich man leave his wealth behind to go and follow the way of Jesus? And then after the moment of truth, there's some sort of resurrection life. There's a, a new beginning and a new life that they're invited to. I would argue that this is what you see in Genesis chapter 3 through Revelation chapter 20 in the scriptures. Rising tension, question, what's going to happen? Moment of truth on the cross. And then we have an invitation to new life in Jesus. Every story follows this arc to some degree. And I would argue it's because they're all an echo of a greater story that's being told. 
that there's actually what we might call a meta-narrative, a story behind the story, a story that's bigger than the story, that every other story is encompassed within. If you're wondering what a meta-narrative is, and I can see it in your eyes, you are. I'm so glad you asked that question. Here's what a meta-narrative is. A meta-narrative is a narrative or a story that seeks to make sense of the universe and its seeming complexities as well as our existence within it. Some followers of Jesus are more familiar with the term worldview, a way that we view the world, and that's exactly what a meta-narrative is inviting us to. But here's the problem, here's the problem, here's the problem. In our cultural moment of postmodernity, one of the main distinguishing factors of postmodernity is the rejection of meta-narratives. We want to be the captain of our own fate, the master of our own soul, don't we? So our story isn't somebody else's story. My story is my story, and it's unique, and it's special to me. Sort of. Sort of. It's also a part of a bigger story, and it's following a bigger arc, but that's the cultural moment that we find ourselves in. The French philosopher Jean-Francois Lyotard argued that postmodern outlook can simplistically be defined as incredulity toward meta-narratives. That is, a mistrust or skepticism about unifying stories and the grounds for universal legitimacy. Yeah, in pre-modernity, meta-narratives were assumed. In modernity, meta-narratives were proven. In post-modernity, they're rejected. And so this leaves us at this point for us to sing this is my story and this is my song that my story would be enveloped into a bigger story that's not entirely and only mine is an anathema to our postmodern mindsets and i'm not sure if we're aware just how much this has affected our psyche i'm going to invite you into a bigger story today i'm going to invite you to find your story in a bigger story, one that God is telling, and one where you are not the star. If you have your Bible, will you open with me to Ephesians chapter 2? It's on page 998 in the pew Bible that's in front of you. If you're joining us in Resonate, welcome. It's in the chair back that's in front of you there. And as you turn to Ephesians chapter 2, let me catch you up in our series that we're calling Revision, in case you haven't been here over the last few weeks. We're studying Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus that was written in roughly A.D. 62 when Paul was on house arrest in Rome. He's writing to the church at Ephesus, a church that he loves and a church that he knows well. And this letter is unique because it's not birthed out of any sort of conflict, but it's simply an invitation to the church to walk in the way of Jesus. It immerses us in the holy and sacred conditions out of which the mature, or we're arguing in this series, the revised life can develop. In week one, we talked about a revision to our identity. Last week, we talked about a revision to our vision of growth. And then today, we're going to talk about a revision to our stories. Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 1. Are you there? A bunch of you are. Let's roll. Here we go. And you were, will you say it with me, church? Dead. 
in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind, in which we all once lived, with the rest of mankind, with the rest of humanity. And here's what Paul's saying. Paul's saying is it doesn't matter what type of family you were born into or what type of religious upbringing you had, whether you were a Jew or whether you were a Gentile, nobody escapes the fate of the beginning of this story being one that is dark, one that has tension. That this is everyone's story. This is, we are being invited to zoom out and we will never become disciples if we can't come to terms with the story that we're in. Or you might say it like this. You can only become a disciple when you embrace the story. And by story, I don't mean something that's untrue or something that's made up. But rather, I'm talking about a truth, a larger truth that shapes the way that we see the world. And can we admit the beginning of the story, the beginning of the story in Ephesians chapter 2 verses 1 through 3 is a beginning that we'd rather fast forward through, isn't it? It's something that we don't really want to look at and that we don't really want to wrestle with, but none of us avoid it. A newspaper in Great Britain was doing a series on what's wrong with the world, and they asked theologians to submit essays talking about what was wrong with the world. And G.K. Chesterton submitted his essay, and it was only two words long. His response, I am. I am. What's wrong with the world? I am. And that's the point that Paul is making at the very beginning Of this chapter. And you were dead. And you were dead. In your trespasses and sins. He uses two different words here. He wants to get at this idea in multiple ways. And he wants to nuance it out for us. Because trespasses has to do with specific acts or actions of sin. Sin that he talks about second is more of a power that you're under or a force that you're under. So later on, Paul will write that you were a slave to sin. You aren't a slave to trespasses, but you can be a slave to sin. But here's what you need to know. The very beginning of our story is we talk about the rising tension in the human condition. The problem is not that sin makes us bad. The tragedy is that sin makes us dead. It's not that we were bad and God made us good. It's that we were dead. And what we're going to see is he makes us alive. The rising tension in the story of all of humanity, the meta narrative, the story behind the story is that we are dead. We're dead to God. We're dead to the reason that we were designed and the reason that we were created. If you're wondering for more nuanced view of what that looks like, what that death looks like, Paul unpacks that for us. He says it actually looks like three things. It looks like following the course of this world, chapter 2. This world where there's 
systematic evil and injustice. And sometimes it's just as normal as the air that we breathe. There's a way of doing things that we would call this world. Also, being a part of this world means that there's things like cancer and sickness and sorrow and death. Yesterday, we hosted a memorial service for an 18-year-old young man. And there's something in every single one of our souls that cries out, something about that is not right. It shouldn't be. It shouldn't be. But we understand that our world is fractured and our world is broken every time we stare at the blue light of our news apps and we swipe and we read the different stories or we crack open a history book. We can see that our world is fractured and that our world is broken. But Paul says there's a second problem too. There's, he calls him the ruler of the power of the air. It's his way of talking about spiritual, personal spiritual evil, that there is a very real enemy to your soul. Jesus says that there's a thief that would love to steal and kill and destroy you. He is against every piece of flourishing that God wants to bring forth in your life. And here's why that's so important that we recognize, because if we don't realize that we have a very real enemy, then we will blame every bad thing that happens in our life on God. And so Paul says, no, 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 it's the world and the devil, or the Satan, the accuser, whose, whose main tactic in your life is lies. So as you wash your mind with truth, you are fighting a spiritual battle. And then he finally says, among whom we all lived in the passions of our flesh. Have you ever had a desire or a longing that you knew if you followed it through, it would be a bad thing for you? Okay. It might, it might look like a, another piece of chocolate cake or, or it might look like a person or it might look like, but, but you know that that's a bad direction to go. Anybody, am I alone in this? Okay. Yeah. So we all know we're fighting this battle, right? And to be dead means that we follow and that we carry out the course of the world, the flesh and the devil. And all of it oftentimes feels like it's moving in the right direction, but in reality, it's leading us to ruin, to ruin. Yeah. See, we have this rising tension of the world, the devil, and the flesh, and sin. It creates this cosmic cage that leads to our death because it severs relationship with the living God. If you want a great study this week and a parallel to Ephesians chapter 2, verses uh, 1 through 10, go and read Jesus' story in Luke chapter 15 about the prodigal son and the prodigal father. It's this beautiful picture, a son who walks away, severs relationship with his father. And his dad thinks about his son in this far off land. And he says, my son was dead. My son was dead because he was away from relationship with me. A number of years ago, I was um, using an hedge, electric hedge trimmer and I was trimming bushes in my front yard and I was feeling pretty good about myself because I'm not a Mr. Fix-It kind of guy, but I, I can trim hedges, right? And so I was just going at it. And all of a sudden, I cut through my extension cord. And so I'm on the phone with SDG&E. What's wrong with you? My, no, I'm not. What, what, no, what happened? I severed the source of power. I severed its source of life. 
And what Paul's saying is that for every single one of us in this room, there's a rising tension. There's a conflict. There's something off, something wrong. We've followed the wrong principalities and the wrong powers, and it has severed us from the life that we were always designed to live. And so Paul makes this point. We were by nature children of wrath. Now, most of us read that and we think that Paul's talking about God's wrath. But that's not what Paul says here. We were by nature children of wrath. And please hear me. God does have wrath. God does have anger. God does get very, very upset about the fracture of his good creation. And he will one day right every single wrong and he will step in and he will judge right from wrong. He will do that. But I don't think that's what Paul is talking about here. I think he's talking about the kind of wrath that we unleash through sin. You can read about that same wrath in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 31. It's exactly what he talks about here. See, the world, the flesh, and the devil are responsible for evil and suffering. God is not. God is not the enemy. Those things are. And so we have this moment of truth that Paul wants to lead us up to. We're supposed to get to this point in the text, and we're supposed to ask the question, well, what could be done? This seems really, really dark. It seems all-encompassing. It seems like we're in a cage that there's no way that we could get out of. It's exactly where Paul leads us to, the edge of the cliff in Romans chapter 7, verse 24. What a wretched man am I! Who could save me from this body of death? We're intended to ask, that's a great question. (laughs) Who could save you, Paul? Who, Who could save us? I mean, do we take the secular bent of going, well, we just need some improvement. We need more education and more progress and more technology. That'll do it. Can I just ask, is that working? Or maybe we take the bent of religion, more effort, more behavioral modification. Just improve on a few things, tweak a few things, and then God will go, oh, yeah, 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 that solves the problem. Or maybe it's an Eastern thought of we just need to detach. It's all these things that we're attached to. That's the problem. Christianity has a two-word answer to our moment of truth. Two words. Two words that could change your life today. Two words that could change your marriage today. Two words that could change your neighborhood, it could change your family, it could change your future. Two words that have changed the course of history. But God, but God, that's the climax of the Christian story. That's the moment of truth. The moment of truth in the Christian story is not that you stepped up, it's that God stepped in. It's not that you improved, it's that God rescued. That's the moment of truth. But God, the core of our story, friends, is that when we were at our worst, God gave us his best. Somebody say amen. Amen. Paul goes on and here's what he says. Here's what he says. He says, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dread in our trespasses, see, he doesn't want you to get that and miss that. 
made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And he raised us up with him and he seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ. If you hear nothing else from me today, will you please hear this? The gospel is not a message about self-improvement. It's an announcement of divine rescue. And unless we come to the point where we say, we need that rescue, we will never come to the place where we can actually receive it in a way that would change our life. This isn't good advice. This is a glorious announcement. And it's God raising dead things to life. It's not God making bad things good. Are we on the same page there? The gospel is not about how you were bad and God made you good. It's that you were dead and God made you alive. At the crux of it all, pun intended, is resurrection. And resurrection only works on dead things. So here's where we find ourselves that Jesus provides divine rescue that raises us to life. And if sin is essentially a severing of relationship with God that causes death, then salvation is essentially connection to God that brings about life, which is really, really interesting because the only time that Jesus defines eternal life, he defines it like this. And this is eternal life, that they know you, talking about his father, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. This word know here is the word gnosko. We talked about this last week. It means personal, intimate, relational knowledge. That they know you. This is eternal life. To be made alive means to be born again to love. To be born again to the voice of God. To be born again to the ways of God. To be born to the kingdom, according to John chapter 3. So you may be wondering here today, maybe you're new to this story. or Maybe you haven't heard it in a long time. Or maybe you've just assumed that you've known it. One of the things that Paul wants to make absolutely essential and clear is God's motive for what he did. He says it like this in verse 4. But God who's rich in mercy, because of the great, what? Love with which he loved us. Now, Paul is intentionally repeating himself. He loved us with great love, 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 love. I mean, he's just, he wants it to echo in your heart and echo in your soul because he knows that we have a lot of misnomers and misconceptions about God. Some people think that God is that angry, vindictive God in the sky, just ready to strike us dead if we do anything wrong. Other people think God is the cosmic slot machine or the cosmic genie. If you rub him the right way, he'll give you exactly what you want. Um, Other people are really terrified of God. If they get out of line, he's just going to slap them. And Paul says, no, 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 no. Don't miss this. Don't miss this. Don't miss this. When God looks at you, his arms are wide open and his eyes are filled with love. 
Some of you think John 3.16 is just about the way that God loves the world in general. It's about the way he loves his people. You. One of my favorite new songs is by a guy named Cody, Corey Asbury, and he writes this. He says, prodigals come home, the helpless find hope. Love is on the move when the father's in the room. Prison doors fling wide and the dead come to life because love is on the move when the father's in the room. Yet when Jesus' friend John tried to describe what God was like, he said, God is, and he used one word, God is love. Does it mean that God has uh, no other emotions other than love? No, 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 it doesn't mean that. But it means that he is always love. He's never not love. He's never not looked at you in love. That's who he is. It's the very core of his character. And when he runs to you, he runs in love. And so Paul continues and he says this in verse 8, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. When we talk about being saved by grace through faith, which is one of the core tenets of Protestant theology, this is the verse that's in the background of our mind. I love the way that the author Anne Lameau put it. She said this, talking about this passage. Grace means that you're in an entirely different universe from where you had been stuck. When you had been had absolutely no way of getting there on your own by grace we have been what saved and most of us when we think about that word saved we have this picture of going to heaven in our mind and indeed that's what paul's thinking of at least partially you can see that in verses five through seven but there's a whole nother dynamic of this word saved it could also mean healed restored When the woman who's been bleeding for 12 years reaches out and touches Jesus' cloak and she's healed, she's sozoed in the Greek. Same word, she's saved. And so, yeah, absolutely. Salvation means that we go to heaven when we die. But as we'll see in verse 10, it also means that we're reawakened to be fully human in the way that God had always designed us to be. When Paul wrote, not of yourself, this isn't your doing. What he's talking about is salvation. Salvation is not something that you earn. It's not something that you purchase. It's not something that your good works can get you. In fact, he goes on in verse 9 to say, this is not, salvation is not a result of works. So that no one can boast. You know, none of us will beat our throne before, beat our chest before the throne of God and say, God, aren't I amazing? That will not be our story. Before the throne of God, we won't talk about how great and how amazing we are. We will only be captured with how amazing and beautiful and gracious and merciful and loving God is. That is our story. That is our song. Praising our Savior all the day long. And what religion says is work harder, do more. In fact, in fact, as people being led into a concentration camp in Auschwitz would have seen if they looked up a sign that stood above the entry. And I won't try out my German on you, but the sign simply reads, work makes free. A total lie. 
work harder and you might get out. It's the same lie that most religions around the world perpetuate today with a little bit of a different framework and a little bit different packaging. But all of them, other than Christianity, if you boil them down, have this tenant attached to them, get a little bit better, do a little bit more, improve a little bit. And then maybe, maybe, maybe God will love you and welcome you. But at the core of Christianity, the moment of truth is not that you stepped up. It's that God stepped in. There is no work that will make you alive in the way that you long to be alive. That only comes through Jesus and that only comes through surrender and that only comes because of his sacrifice. And so Paul in another passage says, um, he says, we can't boast in verse nine, but then in Galatians chapter six, verse 14, he says, far be it from me to boast. Except, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Oh, yeah. The cross is our boast. Oh, the the wonderful cross that bids me come and die and find that I may truly live. This is our story. This is our song. Paul ends this section by saying, for we together are his, say it with me, church, Workmanship. In the original language, in the Greek, it's the word poema. It's where we get our English word poem. You could read this. We are his poem. We are his song. We are his symphony. We are his masterpiece. We are his work of art. Created in Christ Jesus for good works. See, you weren't saved by good works, but you were certainly saved and released for them. Which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. God's poem, God's song. Yeah, the rising tension in the meta narrative behind every story is that we were dead, but God came to the rescue and he made us alive. He made us poetry. He made us a song. And it's this faith that Paul talked about in verse eight, because that's our part, right? That we would say to God, God, I trust you. And God, I'm gonna rely on you. It's this faith because of grace that awakens us to God and makes us masterpieces for good. For good. Did you know that there was a time when Jesus' followers were referred to as do-gooders? Sort of a moniker that people use to describe us. Do-gooders because we cared so much about health care and education and the poor and the foreigner and the fatherless and the widow, they just referred to us blanket statement, those do-gooders. I would long for a day when people on the outside of the church looked in and they once again called us do-gooders. People who are redeemed and released for good. What do you do with this? Let me suggest two things in closing. First, Surrender to grace. If last week was about waving the green flag saying, God, I want to grow and God, I want you to change me. And God, I know there's things left to learn. Today is about once again, raising the white flag, reminding ourselves this all begins with surrender. 
For some of you today, that's the word for you that you need to walk out and you need to wrestle with before the throne of God. There are other salvation projects that you are undertaking. And today, Jesus is inviting you to repent, to believe the good news, and to step into life in his kingdom. And I pray that you will. Second, second. Here's the invitation. Seek your good. And what I mean by that is seek the way that God wants to strum the chords of your life to add to the symphony of his grace and the praise of his glory throughout all of eternity. How might your story be a part of his story? What's your wiring? What are your passions? What are you gifted at? And how might you use that for his glory and for the world's good? You've got a part to play in the symphony that God is conducting. What's that part? Earlier last summer in 2019, there were two high school students off the coast of Florida who um, on their senior ditch day went to the beach and they were swimming and it was a stormy day and they started to get taken out to sea and eventually they got taken all the way out two miles from the shore. And they were treading water and they were praying and they were crying. And the young man said to the young woman who was with him, we've got to pray. And he said, quote, quote, that if God doesn't show up, we are done. And around that same time, coincidentally, there was a yacht that was coming by. And the captain of that yacht heard screaming and crying and over the waves and through the wind and the blowing water, he looked and he saw two people bobbing up and down. And he went over two miles out, middle of the ocean, two miles out. And he went out and he rescued and picked up these two young people and brought them into the boat. And they said to him, you have no idea. We were just praying and we were just asking God to show up. And here you are. And the captain looked at him and said, yep. And would you read the name of my boat that's painted on the side? And on the side of his boat was printed the name. Amen. Amen. This is our story. This is our song. It's not about improvement. It's about rescue. And by faith, it becomes your story too. I hope it will today. Jesus, thank you for your grace and thank you for your mercy. For the way that you met us in conflict, you met us in tension, you met us in death and you raised us to new life. Oh, may we never be a people who grow tired of singing of it, of telling of it. May you use this church to be a voice to this community and around the globe for the grace and the glory of your name and for the joy of all people as we find our story in yours. It's in your name that we pray. And all God's people said, amen and amen.